Hi there, and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Ides of March edition. I'm your host and journal editorial writer, Sarah O'Donnell. It is Friday, March 14th, 2014, and with me today in the newsroom studio to talk planes, trains, and caucus revolts are city columnist Paula Simons. Hello. Provincial affairs columnist Graham Thompson. Hello. And politics reporter Miriam Ibrahim. Hi. Miriam and Graham. Let's just get right into this. No messing around. Can you give us a recap of what has happened to the legislature since the provincial budget was delivered last week? Well, uh, yeah, the budget was delivered last week, but uh, I think unfortunately for the government, the agenda sort of uh, got away from them and the focus really did remain on the use of government planes, um, expenses, uh, all the things that we've been hearing for, uh, you know, weeks and months now. And of course, uh, the very first question period of the session They got right into the $45,000 South Africa tab, and uh, that culminated uh, this week on Wednesday with Redford suddenly, very suddenly announcing that she was going to be repaying the cost of that trip. Why did she do that, Graham? (laughs) We've been hearing for weeks that this is a big issue that's been a thorn in the side of of caucus members. They're hearing about it wherever they go, Safeway, Costco, they get nailed by uh, angry voters saying, what the heck's happening with this? So they're thinking... This has got to be fixed. And they had talked uh, to people in the premier's office, and the premier kept saying she's not going to pay this money back. You know, she was on government business. Um, if she did pay it back, it'd be setting a precedent. She'd have to start paying back every, all kinds of other things the opposition would demand from her. But what happened was behind the scenes, as many as 20, 18, 20 M- MLAs were so angry, so disgruntled with the premier, that there was, they were kind of talking about sitting independently. Now, this wasn't an organized, um, I guess, formal coup where they went to her and demanded this. These were unhappy people in caucus. And there was some movement about, look, if they're that unhappy, maybe they're going to cross the floor and sit as independent. So um, all of a sudden, this became an issue for Redford that she could not ignore. And on Wednesday, we were given like seven, like literally seven minutes warning. She'd be making an announcement. And she made the announcement and took no questions from the media and walked out. And she was paying back the money. So she was she did it to try and, I guess, head off what could have been a major, major problem for the government. If, in fact, as many as 20 actually did walk across and become independents, it would mean a minority government and potentially a collapse of the Redford government. It did not make things all better, though, her paying back that $45,000. What happened next? We need to tell our listeners, one, there was one unhappy MLA, so unhappy that he decided to take his business uh, elsewhere. Len Weber was the one who actually went through with this in the sitting as an independent, and he did it not quietly. He did it uh, quite loudly in a sense. He had a, a scrum with reporters, and he lobbed all kinds of uh, grenades at the premier, calling her abusive and a bully. Not and, a, not, and not a nice lady. Not a nice lady. Oh, oh, how cutting. So what's your reaction to this, the Calgary MLA, Len Weber, who, is, who has been elected several times. He's a respected member of cabinet, lately a backbencher. Well, he but used to be a member of car- cabinet. Right, that's, right. That's you know, it, it, the problem. You right. know, sir, it's really hard not to see this in a little bit as opportunistic sour grapes. Len Weber has already made it plain that he was leaving government to run for a federal uh, nomination for the Federal Conservative Party of Canada. Um, so he'd already signaled that he was not going to be running again in the next election. He needs to distance himself from the taint of the Redford government, the 
perceived change of the Redford government if he wants to get that federal nomination. So apparently he met with his dad, who was a former very, you know, well-known politician in Alberta, Neil Weber, a cabinet minister in the Lougheed years. Neil Weber gave a unintentionally hilarious interview in which he said, you know, we met and we decided. And I thought to myself, really, Len, daddy is still deciding for you when you're going to sit in caucus or not? And then, of course, Weber went out with this you know, he didn't say he was leaving the party because he questioned the premier's integrity or her ethics or any of her policies. He made it an extremely personal. He kind of did, actually. Well, but, I would, but, I would but, disagree but, but with not, that. But not about her. Pol- but it was about her personality. And I thought it was very unfortunate because Len Weber does have a pretty solid reputation from his time as a Stelmac cabinet minister. And instead, he chose to make it personal and to use derogatory and sexist language. And I think that really took away from the fact that this is a government in crisis, and it's not about Redford's table manners. She brought down a budget on Thursday that was supposed to change the channel for the party. It was going to be their first balanced budget. It was going to trumpet a surplus. That was supposed to be what was going to save their bacon. The budget instead was a steaming mess. It didn't make people happy. People were very, you know, it's a fudget budget where the surplus is imaginary, where there was no funding for LRT that provoked such an outrage in Edmonton that they had to quickly call another one of these surprise press conferences to announce, surprise, that they kind of sort of had $600 million for Edmonton's LRT. So, you know, the inability of Redford To me, this isn't about the fact that people don't like her. It's about the fact that she's not running a good government. If she looked like she were in control, if she looked like she knew what she was doing, they would put up with whatever bullying and bad behavior. I mean, Ralph Klein was the king of bullies. The point is that they don't trust her to lead the government. And it's easier to take cheap shots at her personality than admit that the party is in a policy freefall. I will say he did definitely bring up... um uh, issues of expenses, government plane. He also brought up debt and said that he felt that she was uh, pulling the province into debt with the latest budget that was tabled. And I also read that he had been um, kicked off Treasury Board after he uh, refused to support the budget. <laughs> I, I, I th- to me, there's, there's issues on both sides on this. I think that Paula's right. It is the politician using a moment to try and gain support. And uh, same time, though, he is speaking for a lot of people in caucus. There's a real disgruntlement about her and is dealing with with personality. Um, There are issues with her policy. To me, some of the government policy is driven by the Premier's personality. Yes. Good, good and bad. You know, she wants things changed, wants it changed now, which creates problems within the government. But there is that sense as well, that sort of an imperious attitude she has towards the caucus. She's on top, she is dictating to them below what will be done. But I would say to you, if if she were dictating policies in which they had confidence, if she were dictating policies that met the needs of Albertans, people would put up with bad behavior. The problem is that she's got a fatal combination of bad policy and bad manners. And and in a way, it's a parallel with what's happening federally with uh, Harper dictating to the the caucus members. And people like Brent Rathgaber, of course, said, I've had it with this, and and they've they've got out. Um, Yeah, I have have to laugh if Len Weber thinks that that, uh, Stephen Harper is going to be any more of a nice lady than Alison Redford. He may be in for a rude I know, and that's a step. Yeah, pe- people who do jump and want to go to the federal uh, government and be, be backbenchers with Harper. As, as, as David Zhao, there was talk of Jenna Sarich, who said she's sticking in around with, with provincial politics. But you're right, they'll be even more um, isolated, uh, I think, in Ottawa. But having said all that, um, again, I agree with Paula. A lot of the things that Weber said to me are, are, are distasteful, and it's a personal attack. But he is voicing the kind of frustration and anger 
that the caucus has towards their leader. So if the caucus was so angry, why did they not follow him then yesterday? Why was he the only one <laughs> who, despite all of that... My goodness, there's barnyard animals in the studio. <laughs> why did he not... Why did he not have other people following him out the door. Because as Paula pointed out, this is the guy who's actually running. He's, he's leaving provincial politics anyway. He's got nothing to lose. Nothing to lose. Um, David Zhao, of course, you could, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't say David Zhao doing the same thing, even though he's going to run federally as well, he hopes. But the, the majority of them have something to lose. Um, they want to get reelected. They're still hoping that uh, things can be turned around. They're still hoping that uh, the polls will go up and they can win re-election as conservatives. What's better? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody shoot that goat. It's not a goat. It's a sheep. Oh, okay. Those are the sounds of the sheeple in, in that party who will, you know, as long as they think that that is their best political bet to follow the leader, that's what they will do. And the moment the sheeple decide that it's not in their loss and their political interest to follow the leader, they'll knife her. Ides of March time, you betcha. It is, yeah, and uh, you, the, the parallels with Stelmack are quite striking. You know, you go back four years ago, Stelmack, like uh, Redford, got 77%, thumbs up their uh, annual convention, and a few months later, the knives were still out because he was unpopular. Back then, the issue was over the uh, economy going down the toilet, which wasn't his fault with the world uh, collapse in the financial markets, but also the price of oil dropped when he was raising royalties. Um, so th- that point... In March, four years ago, we were saying the knives out for this guy. And even though he got 77%, the party forced him out. Right. He, it, he made year. it a little longer, didn't he? He made well, it 14 months. Uh, f- 14 I mean, this months. is awfully early. Well, no. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. The, the, the rebellion is a lot, a lot more uh, vociferous when it comes to Redford. And the question now is, can she last the year? And the, the, the template set, the, the precedent's been set that this is the party that will kick out a premier who won a majority government that actually has 77% approval rating in the party, that they will actually still kick that premier out if they if need be. Miriam, can you tell me, what were the looks on the faces of government MLAs as they came out of government house yesterday following their caucus meeting? And then I want to hear about what the opposition had to say. Well, it really depends on which MLA it was. Um, you know, some of the uh, senior cabinet member, senior cabinet ministers who were out uh, to, to defend the premier totally brave faces, came out defiant. Um, some others were uh, a lot more reluctant reluctant to say anything at all. And, um, you know, a lot of them were just sort of putting their heads down and trying to get to their cars as quickly as they could and pass the, the, the media horde that had been uh, camped outside government house all day trying to get a sense of what had gone on inside there. Um, and and it was interesting. I mean, as, as you say, uh, Deputy Premier Dave Hancock, for example, you know, Redford came out and didn't say anything at all to us. Uh, she was asked about um, what her reaction was to the allegations that Len Weber had raised. And she said, quote, no reaction, uh, which was uh, interesting and then rushed into her SUV. Um, and then Dave Hancock came out and uh, talked about talked about those allegations and said, you know, he'd never seen anything like that and and called Len Weber a sad man who was basically, he said, disgruntled over the fact that he hadn't got a cabinet appointment under the Redford government. That seems like equally strong language, I got to say. I mean, I know we've just picked apart Len Weber for using the terms nice lady, but sad man doesn't seem much better. No, no, it's not nice either. Actually, and if you read uh, Don Braid's column in the Calgary Herald, uh, even the the PC Association president, Jim McCormick, seems to have have some displeasure with with, uh, the deputy premier's choice of language there as well. So meanwhile, back at the legislature, how have the opposition 
parties been reacting to this? It must seem like Christmas has come again to them. Well, yes and no. I mean, the Wild Rose has based their election strategy for the next election on fighting Alison Redford. I mean, they want to do her damage. I don't think actually strategically they wanted to do her fatal damage because I don't think it serves their interests if Redford is ousted now and the party gets another shot at renewal and then the Wild Rose has to gear up to fight somebody new and different. Now, I mean, it could be that they would fight somebody who was even less effectual than Alison Redford, but I think they have to be worried about, you know, uh, having having planned this attack. What, what do they bring for the next guy or gal? I wouldn't agree with that. And I know, you know this is a conventional wisdom. I would say that they want to embarrass the party and bring her down. Um, you know, they say they may say publicly, we don't, you know, we want to invite her. Unofficially, they're saying they want to bring her down. Like they want to embarrass this party, they'll blow up the party, and hope the party doesn't have time to to rebuild in time. And you could argue, of course, that with Stalmack, they got somebody in the one one re-election under under Redford. But I think that they would prefer just to embarrass the party and say to the public, look give us a chance in the wild rose because these guys can't govern obviously now that we've it's been a couple days since we learned that redford repaid nearly forty four thousand dollars do you think she should have written that check has it has it done her any good whatsoever you know some some people are saying you know yeah it was i mean for example danielle smith in question period yesterday said congratulations for doing the right thing finally um so some people are yeah they're very happy about it others are saying you know it's too little too late um and so i think it remains to be seen whether people's concerns will be placated by the fact that that she is paying back that that amount of money um you know it took six weeks and it was six weeks of how many news cycles of this story right and so uh, i i think it remains to be seen what kind of damage was really done by by all of that it is getting expensive to be premier in Alberta. Well, I think it's the opposition. It was uh, Shane Saskia at the news conference immediately after the premier announced that she was paying back the $44,000, $45,000. He said, we're going to start asking now for all kinds of things to be paid back. So well, he actually said she set a precedent, precedent now, and we're going to keep on yeah, that path and ensure she p- repays every Everything. taxpayer um, dollar that has been misspent, and not just her, but the rest of the rest of I th- uh, government. I think that it's probably better she actually paid the money back now. It's, 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 look, it's two bad scenarios. You know, never pay it back or pay it back too late. It's better paying it back too late. At least it gives them a opportunity to put this issue behind them because the Wild Rose, as you mentioned, uh, Miriam, did say we can put this behind us now. It was Sarah actually a couple of weeks ago who said that it would make her look weak and guilty. I think to pay it back. I mean, it's it's an interesting question. I mean, clearly maybe, bad advice, by the way. No, well, I'm not sure that it was. I mean, it may have been what saved her from having 18 to 20 members walk out the door. We don't know. We don't know how real that threat was, and we don't really know if it was averted by this. What I can say is that buying your way back into people's love is a very expensive proposition. I want to come back to that LRT announcement in Edmonton. you know, they called this very hasty press conference, arrived with a huge fanfare on the LRT from Government Center and announced this big gift to Edmonton. And Don Iveson, the mayor of Edmonton, stood next to Allison Redford, and I kept waiting for him to have a big grin so I could take a picture to make a happy Don Iveson meme. There was never a big grin. His body language was very ambivalent, and there was this uh, painfully awkward moment when Redford kind of went in for a hug and... You know, it was that kind of thing where one person meant to hug and the other person didn't really. Uh, It's very hard to try and do damage control after the fact. I want to know what impact do you think this upheaval within the Conservative Party caucus has on 
everybody else. How is that impacting you and I? I mean, it's interesting to watch. We, we love politics. We love to watch this kind of stuff. But does something like this actually matter to government? Like, does government continue doing what government does? Well, I I think obviously they're going to they're going to continue doing whatever they do behind the scenes, you know, meeting with people, that kind of thing. But uh, like I like I said earlier, they've lost control of the agenda. They're introducing bills and, you know, people aren't paying attention to them. Um, their 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 flagship bill, Bill One, the Savings Management Act, the one that's going to be introducing these uh, social innovation bonds and, and that sort of thing in these new endowment funds. People aren't talking about it as much as I think government would like. Um, and that's, a, I think, a consequence of, of the expense scandal. I think it's also true if you talk to some of our colleagues who cover various beats that they're having a difficult time. I think a lot of departments, a lot of people are just hanging back waiting to see what happens next and the you know the 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 quotidian day-to-day stuff will go on but the policy formulation i think has ground to something of a halt it's almost like we have a leadership race already begun you know when these races mm-hmm. begin the government grinds to a halt right daily stuff gets done checks get cut for people um you know and, and the public and things like that but the actual overall policy decision making grinds to a halt and you get that sort of shadow right now of that actually happening people uh, wondering what's going to happen because this is a government in crisis and potentially it could fall um, and the premier could actually fall and uh, this is very interesting and so people in government tend to um, the old joke is that government has the um, engine of a Volkswagen and the brakes of a Rolls Royce (laughs) (laughs) and those brakes can be put on really quickly well it's interesting too so yesterday Brian Mason characterized it as a government that was paralyzed and said you know there the house wasn't conducting itself the way it normally would be they weren't they weren't uh, talking to a lot of bills there wasn't a lot of government members speaking to bills there wasn't they were adjourning early the premier wasn't there for most of she wasn't she wasn't in question period three out of four days this week um and and I'm she's sort of gone on she sort of went underground yesterday like I said didn't really do a lot of talking and and didn't show up at a major western premier's conference where she was supposed to be at, at, you know as a result the whole premier's conference kind of derailed yeah, yeah became she would a conference call she would have been crazy to go though can you imagine this is going on and you like get on a plane and fly away I can't imagine anything that well and the other worse. and the other thing is that yesterday there had been all of these different announcements government announcements that were supposed to go forward that got canceled at the last minute because of this caucus crisis you know there was a, a wildfire news conference that's supposed to happen yesterday with uh, I believe Robin Campbell and that didn't happen and I think there were and we saw that the day before too where we thought that Premier would be at the McEwen announcement and then we were suddenly told that she wouldn't be so there seems to be a lot of uh, confusion and a lot of um, uh, uh, difficulty in sort of conducting their their day-to-day business as as all of this sort of eclipses that. Okay, we allu- you alluded to this briefly, Graham, but I want to know what do we think is in the Premier's future? I mean, I, I ask this very seriously. When we record next week, will she still be Alberta's Premier? I think she will be. Um, she'll be meeting this weekend, speaking of the Ides of March, March 15th. She's meeting with um, the Executive Council of the party. It was a meeting already in, in place. It was a meeting, a regular scheduled meeting in Calgary to talk about the party and, wh- and what's happening. And, and the agenda has shifted dramatically in the space of 24 hours um, to talk about her leadership and uh, she will actually be there to address it. I think, um, yeah, you hold me to it. I think she will still be premier a week from now. I think the party, this is a party that um, wants self-preservation and I think um, the difference between her and Stelmec is that Stelmec sort of gave up. Uh, She is not one to give up. She'll go down fighting. So 
seven days from now, yeah. Beyond that, I don't know. Yeah, I think Stelmack just didn't have the stomach for it. I mean, he was he was a nice gentleman, and he just came to the point, I think, where he made a personal choice that he just wasn't, he just didn't, he just didn't have the fire in the belly anymore. Uh, Redford is proud, Redford is fierce, um, and Redford's inner circle tell her that she's wonderful. So I don't think that she's, I think she's surrounded by advisors who are going to tell her to stick in. Uh, I also think that there isn't a rival, a clear heir apparent waiting in the wings. And I think the party likes continuity. I think with Stelmack, there were people who were clearly warming up and wanting to challenge for the leadership. And I think in this instance, um, you know, we're hearing gossip about Thomas Lukasik, we're hearing gossip about Rick McIver, but I don't see somebody who's ready to be the Paul Martin to her Jean Chrétien, if I can mix a, uh, a, met- a party, a forum, and a metaphor. But <laughs> I don't think I'd want to be Paul Martin to Jean Chrétien. That didn't go well. No, it, no, it, it didn't go well. <laughs> but I mean, oftentimes, you know, it, it didn't go well for, C- for Brutus and Cassius either. Um, <laughs> as long as we're going to stick with our Ides of March analogy, if you're going to take down, if you're going to take down a sitting leader, uh, you better have a plan B. Well, I hope at least it's all wrapped up that we know what's going on next week by Thursday because this is really messing with our recording schedule. That's all I'm going to (laughs) say. Now, though we don't know what to expect in politics, I do know that everyone expects good stuff from the gallery and let it never be said that we don't deliver the goods. We should start with a listener recommendation, which I am very happy is becoming a regular thing. This is a quirky suggestion that comes from Tej Swatch, who has been a great friend of the podcast since the beginning. So thank you for adding this recommendation. He recommends listening to an episode of This American Life called Except for That One Thing. I love This American Life. Specifically, he suggests Act Two, where producer Alex Bloomberg interviews the writer John Mualem, who just wrote a story for atavist about a period in the early 1900s when meat was scarce in the United States. Tej sums up the episode this way. He says, basically in the early 20th century, the U.S. had run out of land to raise meat, and a proposal was made to begin raising and consuming hippopotamus as an alternative. This is a real thing, by the way. It made good sense and solved a couple of other problems, and it made it to Congress to be discussed. The proposal failed because no one could get their wrap their heads around eating hippopotamus. <laughs> <laughs> And it just shows that, you know, I, I look forward to finding out what people think is happening now in government is crazy, like a century from now. Maybe I won't be around. But anyways, maybe I will be. We'll post a link to both this, the This American Life show as well as the Atavist story. So who can top eating hippopotamus? Crickets. Crickets. No one. No one can. <laughs> no one. Okay. Who, can, who thinks they can come a close second to, uh, to eating hippopotamus? All right, I will. Uh, I, mine is more about eating crow. Um, with perfect timing for the whole Weber controversy, uh, Jessica Bennett in Time Magazine on the Time uh, website had a great piece this week about how to avoid sexist diction when talking about women in powerful positions, whether in business or in politics. And it rejoices in the title, 11 Ways to Avoid Sounding Like a Sexist Jerk, Even If You're a Woman. So as we discuss the rise and perhaps fall of Alison Redford, uh, Jessica Bennett's piece in Time is a very good primer on why you shouldn't say a woman is bossy or a nice lady. Okay. Or not a nice lady. Thank you. Miriam, what have you got? (laughs) 
Um, I have a piece that was in the journal uh, last week written by, this is, it's about sports, which will shock everyone that I'm recommending something about sports, but it's about sports and politics. Um, and it's called, Is It Time to Bench the Eskimos Name? And it was written by our own Chris O'Leary. Um, and it basically sort of um, looks at that, that issue of um, sports teams who have uh, names that are uh, can be considered slurs, um, touches on the issue of the Washington Redskins and how uh, some news organizations won't print that name anymore in news reports. And so I thought it was a really interesting read and, and a topic that deserves some, some conversation and some, some reflection. So that's my, uh, that's my recommendation for everybody. I love bringing in the sports. You were talking about this on your blog too, weren't you? Paul? Yeah, I, I had a really, really interesting response to the piece. Chris's piece, it's very thoughtfully written. And it's interesting because he went well out of his way to try and find Inuit activists who were upset with the name Eskimos, and he couldn't actually find any. Well, yeah, I thought it was interesting that the uh, that the few Inuit organizations that he tried to contact, both locally and nationally, um, declined to be interviewed. Yeah, or you know, in, in the case of of the one very prominent Inuit uh, activist here in Edmonton, said, hmm. "Graham, I know your suggestion won't be meh, but well, what uh, have you got?" Um, to mark the um, withdrawal of Canadian troops from the military mission in Afghanistan, I'm recommending a book called uh, "The Patrol." It's Seven Days in the Life of a Canadian Soldier in Afghanistan, written by Ryan Flavel, who's a young soldier who was uh, in Afghanistan. Really well-written book. It gives you sort of an idea of the day-to-day, what it's like to be in a patrol for seven days. And it struck me uh, personally because he was on patrol and he got hit. I was actually on patrol in the very same area. We're just a few kilometers apart. Um, and so one of the guys on his patrol um, was killed, an IED explosion. And uh, these poor guys, you know, because they were, they were, like, shocked. Um, the body's flown back to the, the Kandahar airfield. These guys have to come back and pick up a reporter to take them to the ramp ceremony. And that, I was as a reporter to pick up. I'm not in the book, thank goodness, but they had to pick me up. Mm-hmm. So I rode back with them, um, and I talked to them. You know, and uh, you got a real sense of these young guys, what they've gone through. And I talked to people who actually you know, were on the patrol with them. So um, it's a very personal uh, look, the connection, even though um, I didn't meet these guys for very long, you do get a sense in the book just the kind of life they had to lead when they were over there, just the random violence that things could get turned upside down in, in a flash, in an instant. So it's called The Patrol, Seven Days in the Life of a Canadian Soldier in Afghanistan by Ryan Flavel. Really well written, too. Thank you. We will wrap up the show with that excellent suggestion. All of those links will be posted on the Press Gallery's Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash thepressgallery. Thanks to our producer, Ryan Jackson, who is here in the studio with us. And thanks to all our listeners for making the Press Gallery part of their week. With your help and shares on Facebook, Twitter, and SoundCloud, we hit another milestone last week and logged more than 300 listeners. You can find previous episodes on the Press Gallery on edmontonjournal.com's opinion page and on iTunes. We'll be back next week.